0: I start at page 241. Islamic Statecraft. My study has unambiguously revealed to me that the Holy Quran deals with the subject of government without making any distinction whatsoever between a Muslim and a non Muslim state. The instructions on how a state should be run are common to humanity, though it is the believers who are primarily addressed in the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran speaks of statecraft equally applicable to Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Confucians, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, etc. The essence of this instruction is contained in the verse quoted earlier and other similar verses, which we quote now. فَلَا وَرَبِّكَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ حَتَّى يُحَكِّمُوكَ شَجَرَ بَيْنَهُمْ ثُمَّ لَا يَجِدُوا فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ حَرَجًا مِمَّا or but no, by thy Lord, they will not truly believe until they make thee judge in all that is in dispute between them, and they find not in their hearts any demur concerning that which thou decides and submit with full submission. Ya ayyuhal amanu, kunu qawwameena bil qist shuhadaa lillahi, walau ala anfusikum awil walidayni, Wal In O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice and bear witness only for the sake of Allah, even if it be against your own selves or against parents or kindred, whether the person be rich or poor. In either case, Allah is more regardful of him than you could be. Therefore, follow not vain desires so that you may act equitably. And if you conceal the truth or evade it, then remember that Allah is well aware of that which you do. The traditions of the Holy Prophet wasallam, of Islam are very clear on this subject. He holds every ruler and everyone in authority over another in the way he treats his subjects or those under his authority as being directly answerable to God. But since these discussions have already been exhausted earlier, we need not discuss them further. The substance of this study is that Islam propounds a completely neutral central government in which the matters of statecraft are commonly and equally applicable to all subjects of the state and religious differences are allowed to play no part therein. Islam most certainly admonishes Muslims to follow the rule of the law in all worldly matters. Ya Amanu wa Amri O ye who believe, obey Allah and obey his messenger and those who are in authority among you then if you differ in anything refer it to Allah and his messenger if you are believers in Allah and the last day that is the best and most commendable in the end but as far as relations between man and god are concerned it is an area exclusive to religion and the state has no rights to interfere There is total freedom of mind and heart in the affairs of belief and profession of faith. It is a fundamental right of man not only to believe in anything which he so pleases, but also to worship God or idols as dictated by his religion or pagan belief. According to Islam, therefore, religion has no right to interfere in areas exclusive to the state, nor has the state any right to interfere in areas commonly shared by them. Rights and responsibilities are so clearly defined in Islam that any question of a class is obviated. Many verses relating to this subject have already been quoted in the section dealing with religious peace. Unfortunately, there is a tendency among many secular states to sometimes extend the domain of secularization beyond its natural borders. The same is true of theocratic states or states unduly influenced by a religious hierarchy. Though one may not sympathize with them, one can understand to a degree the lopsided views of states governed by religious fanatics. But when one observes such an immature attitude in the so-called advanced and broad-minded people of secular countries, it is hard to believe. This This is not the only thing difficult to understand in the political behavior of man. As long as politics remains rigidly wedded to national interest and contributes to its philosophy, there can be no such thing as absolute morality. As long as political attitudes are governed by national prejudices and truth, honesty, justice and fair play are discarded whenever they clash with the perceived national interest, and as long as this remains the definition of loyalty to one state, the political behavior of man will remain dubious. Controversial and ever paradoxical. The Holy Quran mentions the responsibilities of governments and people. Some of these responsibilities have been mentioned in the earlier sections of this lecture: the provision of food, clothing, shelter, and the basic needs of its citizens. The principles of international aid, answerability to both the government and the people, their interplay, absolute justice and sensibility to the problems of the people, so that they do not have to raise their voice in demand of their rights. In a true Islamic system of government, it is the responsibility of the government to be watchful, so that people do not have to resort to strikes, industrial strife, demonstration, sabotage, or cause of complaint, to get their rights. Let us turn briefly to some other responsibilities. The Holy Qur'an states, وَإِمَّا تَخَافَنَّ مِنْ قَوْمٍ خِيَانَةً إِلَيْهِمْ عَلَىٰ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ الْخَائِنِينَ If thou apprehend treachery from the people who have made a pact with thee, terminate the pact and their covenant with equity in a manner that should occasion no prejudice. Surely, Allah loves not the treacherous. Those who govern may not govern in a manner so as to promote disorder, chaos, suffering, and pain, but should work diligently and effectively so as to establish peace in every sphere of society. Or, who responds to the afflicted person when he calls upon him, and remove the affliction, and will make you inheritors of the earth. Then, is there a God beside Allah? Little is it that you hate. International relations, the principle of absolute justice equally applicable to all. Even the politicians and the statesmen of today stand in need of Islamic teachings. It is a faith whose cornerstone in international affairs is absolute justice. Ya Ayuhaladina Amanu Kunu Kawamina Lila Hishuhada Abil Kist Wala Ejriman Nakum Shanaan Kumina Allah oh, Tadilu Irdilu Hua Akrobulitakwa Watakullaha In Allah Khabium Bima Tamaloon. O ye who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity. And let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just. That is nearer to righteousness. And fear Allah. Surely, Allah is aware of what you do. I cannot claim to have read everything about all major religions of the world, but neither am I entirely ignorant of their teachings. During my studies, however, I have failed to find a similar injunction as the verse under discussion in their scriptures. Even the mention of international relations is rare. If a similar teaching is also found in another religion, then let me assure you that Islam is in full agreement with that teaching, for therein lies the key to world peace. The world at large is worried today at the future prospects of world peace. The momentous and epoch-making changes in the socialist world and the improving relationship of the superpowers offer a glimmer of hope. The world is in an exultant mood. The general consensus opinion amongst leading politicians seems to be extremely optimistic, even euphoric, at the likely outcome of the momentous revolutionary changes we are witnessing today. The West, in particular, seems to be overconfident and jubilant. It is becoming increasingly difficult for the Americans to suppress their jubilation at what they consider to be a grand slam victory over the communist hemisphere, a victory viewed by some as good over evil and of right over wrong. It will be out of place to analyse in detail the current geopolitical situation and its outcome. Perhaps I will be able to devote a few hours to this subject at the UK Ahmadiyya Muslim Community's Annual Conference at the end of July this year, 1990. The Role of the United Nations Organization Of the many debates raging around the future prospects of world peace as a result of the recent events, one in particular needs special mention. It relates to the role that the United Nations Organization is going to play in being able to secure and maintain, i.e. make and keep, world peace far more effectively than ever before. With the Cold War between the two supergiants coming to an end, it is said that there is a fair chance of closing the gap between their hitherto divergent outlooks, less veto in the Security Council sessions, it seems, and more united decisions on how global problems should be resolved. This may present a completely new look to the Security Council of the future. The only snag so far is the danger of China playing the odd man out. But in view of China's immensely complicated economic and political problems, it should not be impossible to convince China of the advantages of agreement. Whether this dream comes true or not is beside the point. Given that the Security Council as well as the United Nations emerged as the most powerful political instrument to influence the events of the globe and coerce smaller nations to submit to the supreme will of the nations of the world, such a scenario was inconceivable prior to the tumbling of the Berlin Wall. But the question remains, nay, it looms larger on the political horizon than ever before, whether or not the United Nations, in its new role of combined judicial and executive powers of such enormous proportion, will be actually able to achieve global peace. I beg to be excused if I may sound over-pessimistic, but my answer to this question is a very apologetic no. The issue of war and peace in the world does not only hang by the thread of superpower relationships. It is a deep and complex question with its roots embedded in the political philosophies and moral attitudes of the nations of the world. Moreover, economic disparity and the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots of the world are bound to play an important role in the future events of the world. Some effects have already been discussed in the previous section of this address, Unless the principle of absolute justice in the economic relationship between countries is accepted and strictly adhered to, and unfair market practices which exploit the resources of the poor are removed by and for all members of the United Nations, no peace can ever be guaranteed or even visualized for the nations of the world, as long as the relationship of the United Nations organization with its individual member states is not more clearly defined than at present." the prospects of world peace will remain bleak. There is a need to devise some measure to prevent governments from being cruel to their own subjects. Some instrument has to be made available to the United Nations to justly fight injustice wherever it prevails. Till then, one cannot dream of peace for the world. How far the United Nations can interfere with the so-called internal affairs of a country is a very sensitive question and yet vital to the attainment of, of world peace. But if, in the final analysis, the policy of the United Nations is not governed by the principle of absolute justice and different standards are applied to individual nations, then providing greater leverage to the United Nations organizations to interfere in the internal affairs of a state may create more problems than it can solve. Therefore, this issue requires a thorough, cool, and detached study." What has happened so far is simply that the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries have been compelled to confess the failure of scientific socialist philosophies in improving the quality of life in the Soviet Union and her neighboring East European countries. This has created great confusion. The fog is yet to clear before we can see the shape of things to be. Will it be a total defeat for scientific socialism followed by a mad rush back to capitalism in its entirety? Or will there be new experimentation with mixed economies? Will there be a complete breakdown of strict central control by a totalitarian government, Or will the totalitarian control itself break down into pieces, resulting in a near state of anarchy? Or will there be a gradual transition into totalitarian state control to a new compromise system, Of give and take between the state and individuals so that, with the passage of time, civil liberties are progressively introduced and fundamental human rights restored. It is important to wait for the outcome of a new struggle between Mr. Jobachev's idea of perestroika and glasnost on the one hand and the attitude of the strict orthodox in the communist hierarchy. To the best of my knowledge, Most of the benefits in the USSR's class society are mutually shared by the party hierarchy, civil service, and the defense forces. The vital question is what role are they going to play at this critical, nascent stage of the bloodless counter-revolution which is now taking shape? This and similar questions have to be answered before one can reasonably visualize the impact of these changes on the prospects of world peace. Merely a detente between the two superpowers in itself does not bring any hope of peace. On the contrary, it invokes many phantoms of lurking dangers for the third world countries in particular. It was the mistrust prevailing between the two superpowers and their jealousies, which in fact provided a sort of canopy for weaker nations. Also, it was the ability of the weaker nations to change sides and allegiances from the west to east or vice versa which gave them a small measure of maneuverability and bargaining power. But this is no longer so. What hope can these weaker nations entertain now to survive respectably as independent nations in the future? Their thought at this stage shifts to the UNO, a bastion of peace and the only torch of hope for the establishment of a new world order. At least, one wishes it was so. However, Upon a closer critical examination, a completely bleak, oppressive, and even threatening picture emerges. In the newly emergent balance of power, will not the United Nations be practically governed by only one superpower? This presents the smaller and weaker nations no chance to escape the inevitable fate of hunted animals. The present United Nations has proved again and again to be a powerful organization working not for justice but for the political ends of whichever nation has the greatest lobbying power. The concept of right and wrong has never played a part in the decision-making process of the United Nations in our recent memory, nor in the present setup can it play a meaningful role in the future. Politics and diplomacy are too deeply and inextricably rooted in the soil of modern politics to leave any room for absolute justice to take root and be given a fair chance of survival. It is a hard and bitter fact, which no man with respect for truth can deny, that this great and awesome institution has been reduced to an arena of intricate diplomatic activities, lobbying, secret paramours, and past struggles, all carried out in the name of world peace. According to the Holy Quran, therefore, what the world needs is an institution which sets itself the task of establishing justice. Without absolute justice, no peace is conceivable. One can wage wars in protestation in the name of peace, civil conscience, and still dissent for the purported aim of establishing peace. But all that one can achieve is death, but not peace. Alas, few among the great politicians of the world understand the difference between death and peace. Death is born out of inequity, tyranny, and persecution by the mighty. Peace is the child of justice. The Holy Quran often speaks of peace, but always in relation to justice. Peace is oft mentioned as conditional to the dispensation of justice. In a situation erupting into belligerence and active hostility between two Muslim individuals, or nations, the Holy Quran has this to propose. وإن طائفتان من المؤمنين اقتتلوا، فأصلحوا بينهما، فإن بغت إحداهما على الأخرى، فقاتلوا التي تبغي حتى تفيئ إلى أمر الله، فإن فاءت، فأصلحوا بينهما بالعدل، وَأَقْسِطُوا إن الله يحب الْمُقْسِطِينَ إنما المؤمنون إخوة، فأصلحوا بين أخويكم، واتقوا الله لعلكم ترحمون، In case two parties among the believers, be they individuals or nations, fight each other, bring about reconciliation between them. If, however, one of them persists in belligerence and transgresses against the other, bring your collective might to bear upon the one that transgresses to force him until he agrees that his dispute be resolved in accordance with the word of Allah. Then, if both parties, having so submitted, Effect reconciliation between them and make them resolve their dispute with equity. And we advise you that you must exercise absolute justice. Act justly. Remember, Allah loves the just, and believers are brothers. So make peace between your brothers and be mindful of your duty to Allah that you may be shown mercy. In the above verse, Non-Muslims are not mentioned for the obvious reason that they cannot be expected to submit to the teachings of the Quran. Yet, the verse serves as an excellent model for the whole world to follow. While the eyes of the world are turning to the United Nations and the Security Council in the hope that it will acquire a more active, wider and meaningful role in resolving international disputes and thus transforming the world into a more secure safe and peaceful abode. There is very little in the past record of the performance of the United Nations to give credence to this wishful thinking. A world arena of lobbying, intrigue, intense diplomatic activity aimed at formation of pressure groups and attempts to gain an upper hand over one's opponents by any means available, where scruples have no power to play and human conscience is bad entry may of course be called a house of nations, even though in conflict and disarray. But it would be an irony to call such a house a house of united nations. If that be the concept of unity, I, for one, would much rather risk survival in a community of nations which are disunited, but united in truth and justice. The will to master power to crush adversaries, and still the voice of dissent is the most vital question which every nation must address and resolve. One wonders with a deep sense of sorrow as to how long the member nations of this August house would continue to shut their eyes and refuse to open their minds to the danger in, the dangers inherent in the style in which the affairs of nations are run. World peace hangs precariously on the string of a feeble hope that Justice will prevail and justice will be done. I stop at page 252.